Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. You join me and Kerry tonight with Dr. Daryl Leeworthy, the historian and author, as we discuss whether socialism and nationalism are compatible ideologies. Hi, Daryl. Hi, Matt. Well, thank you so much for, for being with us this evening. Um, firstly, I just wanted to ask you a question. Obviously, the, the reason we're doing these, these episodes looking at socialism and nationalism is off the back of Mark Drakeford's comments to Nick Robinson when he said he didn't think they were, they were compatible. Uh, mm. What was your initial reaction when you heard Mark's comments? It's a bit unusual, I think, for a, a first minister necessarily to use such terms. I don't think previous first ministers, at least uh, the previous two uh, first ministers, might have said such things, or at least gone so far on the record, at least. Uh, they might have had different views behind the scenes. But for myself, I think it was a welcome recognition of the realities in which we are. It also points to the fact that Welsh Labour under Mark Drayford is trying to take a slightly different tone compared with previous first ministers, I think would be a little bit more confrontational with Westminster rather than necessarily with the opposition within its um, parliamentary system. And so it shows I think Mark Drakeford being uh, his own person, really. I don't know if it would be much surprise to people, but obviously I think you agreed with the overall feeling of, the, of, of Mark's comments that socialism and nationalism are, are incompatible. Why do you think that, Darren? Well, I might actually have gone a bit further than the First Minister, but that's why I'm not the First <laughs> Minister. Uh, my feeling is that um, a lot of the things that he was saying are actually quite accurate. So, for instance, it's not just what he was saying uh, to Nick Robinson on uh, Radio 4, but actually in his previous uh, Keir Hardy lecture up in Merthyr Tidville in what seems to be in the previous century now, in October 2019, where he actually used terms such as the following, which is that the struggle is not between working people in Merthyr and Middlesbrough, but between the powerful and those who are held back by deep and deliberate inequality. And thus the struggle against privilege and inequality uh, is un um, fatally undermined when it is diverted and diluted into the divisive dogmas of nationalism. And I think that's actually quite a useful point to start off with. And it's certainly a point of politics that I uh, myself would agree with and have said that in both pragmatic and less pragmatic ways, uh, depending on the context, uh, as people will know. But it's not an unusual thing to say either. Just two days ago, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, was saying exactly the same thing. And I think this is something that we should be aware of, is that what Mark Drakeford was saying is standard politics. It's not something that is supposed to blow the top off uh, the political situation. And it does in Wales because things are so small and we get really annoyed about things which are really not that important a lot of the time. The Secretary General said this, people who feel marginalised are vulnerable to arguments that blame their misfortunes on others, uh, particularly those who look and behave differently. But populism, nationalism, extremism, racism and scapegoating will only create new inequalities and divisions within and between communities, between countries, between ethnicities and between religions. Those two things are quite compatible with each other. They are basically the same idea. The Secretary General of the United Nations was formerly the Socialist Prime Minister of Portugal, so the political situations that Mark Drakeford and Mr Guterres are facing are quite similar, with much greater powers as the um, leader of Portugal rather than necessarily the leader of devolved Wales. But nevertheless, the two parties, Labour and the uh, Portuguese uh, Socialist Party, sit in the same European uh, Socialist Party network and are part and parcel of a similar kind of political situation. So I think that's what we're looking at, and that's what makes a person a member of the Labour Party, I think, rather than a nationalist-orientated party, such as the Greens 
more applied Cymru. And I think that's something else that Mark Greenwood has talked about. He was talking in his speech um, in Merthyr about when he was younger, he felt there's a choice between socialism and nationalism, that he joined the Labour Party because he, at the age of 14, he became a socialist rather than a nationalist. And obviously growing up in Carmarthenshire, he had that option, uh, given that there was actually a Plaid Cymru MP uh, when he was younger in uh, Gwynfor Evans. I think I made the same choice, actually, albeit a few decades later, um, in that my own ancestral backgrounds are, lie in the Labour Party. That's no surprise. My parents, grandparents and great-grandparents all voted for the Labour Party in various different contexts, whether in Scotland, England or Wales. And I too faced that choice at 14 or 15 as to which party to go in. And it was the Labour Party which offered me the, the same route, I think, through politics. Um, it was the one that seemed most logical. And so therefore, a lot of the hinterland which Mark Drakeford draws on when he talks about these ideas of the division between socialism and nationalism, uh, and obviously he's got to fight an election in a year's time, so he's going to say these things anyway, there is nevertheless a hinterland which people in our situations can draw upon. Uh, and a lot of people in the Labour Party will draw on that hinterland, whether they are indie sympathetic or indie sceptic, depending on what um, sort of position in the spectrum they lie on. But nevertheless, they, they share a common ground, which... Particularly interested, Harold, in the nationalist green comment there, because the amount of stick I get for being green and I can't be a nationalist, which I am, is manifold in both social media and amongst the, my fellow producers of the blog here. What you alluded to there, you know, there obviously are people who are socialists but have chosen a different route to what you suggested when you were younger. How can you pull all that together, those who are socialists but do want their country to be of an independent nature? It's a complicated one. And we should also add a third party into this mix. Uh, historically, um, it's the Greens, it's the Nationalist Party, and of course the Communist Party originally. They're the first, they're the granddads of left nationalism uh, and grandmas as well, if you like. They are the ones who are the originators uh, and they were bringing through nationalist ideas from a left platform long before Plaid Cymru or the Green Party, long before eco-socialism was even a thing. And I think it's really important that if we, I know we're going to get onto um, similarities with other countries later on, but the Greens are fundamentally part and parcel of this question of, of left nationalism and why people make different choices and go down different uh, roads at particular points in their lives. And you, just because you made a choice at 14 doesn't mean you're going to stick with that choice forever. You can change your mind later on. But it depends what the outcome is, really. What is the thing that motivates you most in becoming a socialist and becoming a political activist and becoming a voter? What is the thing that you're most uh, focused on? For a lot of Labour voters, I think that's fundamentally about social justice in terms of economic social justice, overcoming class inequalities and so forth. For Greens, they do share those politics, that's fundamentally accurate, but also they would tend to prioritise the environment, prioritise the response to the climate questions, and have often seen those climate questions as being overriding, uh, of an overriding nature, I should say. And then the nationalists, of course, have their own positions on these things, which is to say that their first priority is the nation rather than necessarily class or the environment. Uh, and I think that's why we all can, can sit together 
but also why we argue a lot, um, more between ourselves perhaps sometimes, as Kerry was alluding to there in his question, uh, than we do with our opponents, because we're looking at fine lines. And those fine lines become much more apparent when you are looking at fine lines than you are about the big questions, which you have a big existential difference about. That's why there is these distinctions, and that's why there's a bigger family of left-leaning socialists than um, sometimes the Labour Party would like to admit, but also that also the other parties would like to admit as well, that we are all part of a bigger family, uh, but we, uh, like an older si sister and a younger brother, will sometimes fight a lot. Uh, and that struggle can distract us from the, th the questions that we want to find answers to. So you wouldn't take the kind of view, uh, Daryl, that we've looked at in some other pods, that being a socialist uh, and wanting that independence is very much an inherently right-wing type of approach? This is where it gets a little sticky, perhaps, is that there are lots of different forms of nationalism. There are lots of different forms of national liberation movements. There are lots of different forms of independence as well. They aren't all necessarily inherently one thing or another. They're not all inherently right wing, although it's useful, as I say, uh, for a first minister from a Labour Party to say that they are. But they are also not inherently left wing either. There are deep roots to the whole uh, philosophical, political and ideological positions that we're talking through. The left nationalism of the Communist Party, which had its origins in, and I don't want to get too far into this because it's going to put lots of people off, but it gets into the whole questions of uh, Leninism and Lenin's philosophy of national liberation and so on and so forth. But that is also part of the philosophical background of some of the figures like uh, Nelson Mandela, like James Connolly, like other national liberators of the 20th century. There are the questions about uh, green politics as well. Greens have generally favoured smaller contained units. It's easier to deal with environmental questions when you're looking at things on your own terms, dealing with questions immediately in front of you, but recognising you are part of a global circuit and global network of communities as well. But none of those things are inherently right-wing or inherently left-wing. They have mapped themselves onto existing political situations. Both the SNP and Plaid Cymru started off as right-wing parties um, and right-wing movements with some left-wing people in them, but fundamentally they were right-wing movements in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, the Communist Party started on the left and of course has moved towards a centre ground where it, kind of centre ground where it accepted the British road to socialism. And the Labour Party has also had this trajectory where if you went back to the time of Keir Hardy and they were very much in favour of home rule, and that is to say devolution in our terms, uh, then they moved very much of, away from that position with figures like Aaron Bevan, who was quite hostile to the idea of devolution, and then moved back uh, under Rodri Morgan, Ron Davis, and so, on, so forth. But they've always had a spectrum within them. And I think that's the thing to remember is that these are questions of spectra as much as they are, this is definitely this and this is definitely that. They move over time, they change over time, and they reflect the shifting politics of the moment as well. So whereas in the 1960s, a lot of the figures in Labour who were pro-home rule tended to be more on the centre-right of the party, and those who were anti-home rule and more unionist in that sense were generally on the centre-left of the party, there was a political gulf between Cledwin Hughes on the one hand, who was very pro-devolution, and uh, Naira Bevan on the other, who wasn't. But that's a bit more muddled now, where things have got more complicated. So that's where that's really what I hold to, is this idea of a spectrum. As long as we understand it is a spectrum, 
then we can step back and start to understand why it's more complex than a snippet on a radio show or a, or a, or a line on a blog or something like that can, can convey. You talk about these, these spectrums and the history of the Labour Party, especially with this topic. How do you envisage Labour dealing with the national question? I think Labour's going to still have that conversation. Uh, both with itself and with its with the other members of the family, as it were. It's going to have to have that conversation because it's quite likely that Labour is going to remain in charge. And so long as you remain in charge, you have to have serious conversations about the national question as it exists in terms of the Welsh national question, but also the national question in terms of how devolution relates to Westminster and to the other parts of the United Kingdom as well. Uh, because, like it or not, for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, that's going to be the situation, probably. Um, the constitutional politics may change a little. Powers may be devolved or tried to be pulled back. Dare we even think about that? But the constitutional settlement is probably going to be fairly stable in a Welsh context, uh, more so than the other parts of the UK, perhaps. Uh, and so the whoever's the first minister, and at the present time, it seems most likely to be a Labour politician, is going to have deal with those questions. What the constituency Labour parties do, and ward parties and others do, and have conversations about, is going to change because it really, it really alters depending on where you are in the country, who happens to turn up to those meetings when those debates are being held, and anyone who's been inside a, a constituency party meeting of any political party, it doesn't happen to just have to be a, a Labour uh, meeting. Those meetings can be really productive or they could be pulled along according to whatever grumpy whims happened to be uh, on show that day um, or that evening very often. I think the serious conversations being had within cabinet level and those ministers who are likely to join the cabinet depending on um, personality shifts, those are much more considered and much more nuanced in terms of, okay, how do we achieve the best solutions for the people that we are supposedly governing and who we represent. And those solutions are the same, one would hope, but not always so, whether, depending on whether you are in government in Cardiff or in government in London or in Edinburgh or in uh, the Rhonda um, and for RCT or whatever it might be. We know that, because he announced it uh, just the other day, um, is that Mark Drakeford's not going to be there after the not the next election, but the election after that. Um, so there's going to be a shift in personnel then as well. Um, they may have a different uh, debate, but we're also thinking that that is also around the, the time of the next general election in the UK. So all things could change at that point in time as well. Historians are terrible at predicting, however. Um, and yet, I think we can predict the idea that this national conversation will continue. It will continue to have similar terms i think to the way it has now wherein it's about the relationship between a devolved administration which is increasingly sure of itself and certain of its status in a way that it perhaps wasn't in pre-covid times i think covid has really changed that relationship and with a westminster government which has very different priorities but is also because it is a populist government, is used to switching depending on what the wind direction happens to be one moment from the next. So, you know, that national question will continue. But it, it does have those two prongs. When we think of the national question, it isn't just a Welsh question. It is a Wales and Britain question. That's why Labour generally has a more complicated deb debate about these matters, because it finds itself standing in both on both fields, if you like. Some of the other parties 
are happy to stand only in one field. And that sometimes makes their politics a little bit thin, to be polite, uh, polite about these things. Why do you think Welsh Labour has been better at dealing with the national question than Scottish Labour? And secondly, why do you think Scottish Labour dealt with it so poorly? Because I think they, they did deal with it poorly, hence why they're now so, struggling so much. Two things are apparent. Scottish Labour lost a lot of its best talent to London because, although Donald Dewar did go back north, he was really the only one who did. And Scottish Labour, its best talents, were in cabinet in London. And they made a decision there and then that it was better for them to remain in cabinet in London to become, of all things, prime minister or chancellor or whatever. Seems so long ago now, but it's not that hard to remember that so many of the government ministers under New Labour had Scottish accents. They didn't all have Welsh accents, though. That's the difference. Under the Welsh Labour system, a lot of the talent made the decision that it was better to govern in Cardiff because there were more opportunities than to stay in London where there weren't so many. Good examples is this still happens, is that Hugh Aranka Davis made that choice to come back to Cardiff rather than stay in London where sitting on the back benches or being in a shadow cabinet really just wasn't very exciting at all. That's the distinction between the two sets of parties. That's why Welsh Labour has survived much better because it's more able politicians have generally come, have made the choice to try go, to go into government in Cardiff to sit on the back benches in London. Scottish Labour didn't make that choice and it paid the price for it in some ways. Why do you think Scottish Labour continue to be to struggle with that question though? Because mm. it's because of that, like you said, they have to be in both camps. Sort of Scotland is not in that place at the minute. Or do you think there's something else that makes it tricky for them to, to, to get back on their feet? The Scottish question is complicated. Um, obviously, once Labour lost, <laughs> that was the end of it, really. Um, they lost that conversation. And then Scottish politics shifted. Scottish politics has undergone the same um, paradigm shift, if you like, that Irish politics has generally had, which is to say that Scottish politics shifted from a class-based political structure to a, a national-based political structure. Class-based politics held for most of the 20th century in that um, basically working class people voting generally for Labour, not always, but generally, and then um, richer, wealthier uh, folks voting for uh, the Conservative Party, although it actually wasn't the Conservative Party in large parts of the 20th century in Scotland. It was a progressive unionist party, which is a different question altogether. Uh, as we're thinking about that, why they were not the Conservative Party in Scotland. And the progressive unionists in Scotland brought together some liberal voices, some non-aligned voices, but mostly conservative voices, as we would think of them down here. That has shifted in Scotland, and Labour struggled because it is ostensibly a party which is based on class politics, uh, in the old sense. Uh, I mean, there's lots of nuances around it, but uh, Labour was a political party of the trade unions, of labour, of work of representing working people in political structures. And Scotland had that politics and has somewhat lost it. Um, not entirely lost it, but it's, it's lost it in the way that the old liberal politics of religion and nonconformity and chapels and stuff has kind of disappeared to a large extent too. Down here, we haven't had that shift in the same way. And I think that's, the, that's another difference why um, Welsh Labour has not had that struggle in the same way that Scottish Labour has. And Scottish Labour will continue to struggle because it's the same struggle as always anyone has whenever they 
have this change in circumstances and that they think well okay we we know what we're doing but we seem to be speaking a different language now the language we're trying to speak doesn't talk to the people anymore and ultimately if you've got scotland versus the union you don't really need multiple unionist parties you only need one big bad guy <laughs> and that big bad guy happens to be blue and they've been very successful in that and the scottish nationalist the scottish national party is very clever in that in that they just now ignore labor and they go us versus the tories the tories are in power in london therefore it is scotland versus the union very easy labor can't get in and until it wins in london it probably won't be into that conversation at all but then it suffers the same problem which is that it's scotland versus the union it just happens to be that the the blue has shifted to red uh, and that conversation hasn't changed at all and the scottish national party has won that um, for now at least it has won that debate in the same way that the irish parliamentary party won it more than 100 years ago and then what happens when they won independence in ireland the irish parliamentary party and its its opponents in sinn fein sinn fein shattered into multiple different parties so you know who knows what will happen to the scottish national party if independence comes and then the alliance which is the smp shatters and what pol political situation occurs in scotland thereafter it may be that class politics comes back and a specifically scottish labor party is able then to find its voice but only within an independent political structure which it's going to struggle to do i think in the way that the union is constructed at present the smp just have won that debate uh, for now. We, we've looked at Scotland and in your, some of your answers, Daryl, you've looked at Ireland and uh, I thought it was quite interesting on Portugal earlier. Have you got any views on the other independence movements perhaps around Europe, which are quite prominent at the moment and how they kind of fit into what we're talking about here tonight? There are interesting parallels and there have been oft, obviously interesting parallels drawn usually with Catalonia. The Catalan situation is interesting. It's not as apparent in the news at present as you might have noticed. Um, I think that's just generally down to the fact that we're in an awkward situation with pandemic and everyone's just focused on on those matters rather than rather than constitutional politics. But also the the Spanish uh, electoral uh, dynamics are constantly in flux at the present time. Um, I think that quieting down of that situation is interesting though, that you would have thought that right now it would have been louder, as it is in Scotland actually, there would have been louder voices saying, well look, we've managed the situation on our own, we can do these things independently, we don't need, we, we don't need the, um, Madrid telling us what to do in Barcelona. I think the fact we're not hearing that resonate up here as much, it may have something to do with the, the networks that people are, that I'm involved in or whatever but there was a moment where Catalan politics were very prominent in the discussion here in the UK they're not so much at the present and I think I wonder whether that's something to do with the fact that the the debate and the discussion is uh, a little less at the forefront of everybody's minds there are other of course independence-esque movements around Europe um, but again those have all seemed to diminish in noise and I don't mean the noise in the negative sense I just mean in the sense that it's there's a certain quietness around. There's a quietness in Quebec. There's a quietness in a lot of those other places you would expect lots of noise. And I wonder whether that's because no one quite knows what to do uh, for the future. What 
exactly is the landscape going to look like when we're out of this pandemic, plus the political situation we happen to be in, which is generally about, okay, let's sit on our hands for a couple of months before the American election. That, I think, is actually fundamental to a lot of these things. The, the American election is then done. If Donald Trump wins, oh crumbs, what do we do next? If Donald Trump loses, okay, we can start to think of uh, the next steps now. Uh, and it strikes me that that happens quite a lot, is that every time there's a big American election, we all sit in our hands for six months, waiting to see what the winds are going to do from that. So actually, I think whilst the Scottish National Party are talking themselves loudly at present, because there's an election coming there, because the uh, Irish have just had their elections, they've resolved their government only a few weeks ago, there's been discussions there. Um, and Sinn Féin's polling numbers are still holding. So they are standing, what, about 26% compared with uh, Fine Gael on 36 37%. So there's reasons why Ireland and Scotland are still quite loud in the conversation. Some of the other places are quietened down because the constitution doesn't really matter when lots of people are in hospitals not very well or potentially not very well yeah no i think you i think you're exactly right i do think um there's bigger things on people's minds at the moment which is really taking it uh, a lot of the impetus away in a lot of the areas we generally hear from so if we're looking at it like that though and the independence movements back in a in a normal world and catalonia is pushing for what it wants the basques may then follow I'd suggest there's an argument you'd have a domino effect around some of those more independent-leaning parts of Europe. How, how do we make that work, considering that, you know, I'd suggest that some of those areas would be inherently socialist, but you've got that kind of borderless world kind of approach on the, the left wing. How, do, do you see that being workable? The anchor here is usually the Irish question. <laughs> I'm afraid it keeps coming back to Ireland, I'm sorry. It's exactly that question, because they are the one part of Europe which have faced that question. They separated um, themselves successfully from Westminster in the same way that Catalonia wants to separate itself and reconstitute itself as an independent state from Madrid. They ostensibly might have thought if you went into the GPO in Dublin in Easter 1916, there were socialists in that firing guns at the soldiers. But as soon as Ireland became an independent state, it hasn't had a socialist leader ever. The closest the socialists have got to uh, high office is Michael D. Higgins. And, but unfortunately, the Irish president, uh, who is in fact the, the senior socialist in Britain and Ireland at this moment in time, we forget that, but the Irish president has no authority and no power no political or constitutional opportunity to change things. He had more power when he was minister for the Gweltach than he does now as president of Ireland. And I think that's quite instructive, that um, as soon as the Irish achieved independence, Labour was told to wait, and by which means socialism was told to wait by the Republicans and by the nationalists, despite the fact that Labour had been central to the, um, the 10 years of, of revolution that took place in Ireland between 1913 and 1923. The fact that Labour was told to wait is probably telling. Very few European political structures which uh, overthrow imperial or dict dictatorial rule successfully hold on to a socialist structure uh, for all that long. Because once you're in power, you don't want to give it away again. And unfortunately, that's the simple rule is that once 
people take control, they're quite happy to hold on to the powers, hold on to the levers of power that they've hard won. Revolutionaries are hard won. They do, those revolutionaries do have to fight a battle. And so you can quite understand why they would not quite want to give power back to the people. But it's telling that they don't in lots and lots of circumstances. And so whatever the spectrum we have within current, the current um, constitutional framework, that's a response to the current constitutional framework. Once you've thrown that off, you have to respond to something new. And often our response is conservative because you want to conserve, in the traditional sense, conserve the revolution, conserve whatever it happens to be. And how you have to create those, those spectra afresh and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be on a socialist spectrum i think that gets lost as soon as there is a revolution what about um when czechoslovakia split into czech republic and slovakia did that kind of follow the same model as ireland there where the levers were maintained where they were or have they gone a different way well in a split between Czechia as it is now and slovakia that was a, a peaceful constitutional referendum. They split, they chose to separate rather than any kind of armed uprising. And that's the distinction to make, I think. But that, that, that would be what we'd hope for any kind of independence movements that we're talking about tonight, Wales, Scotland, Catalonia. We'd want it on those kind of terms, wouldn't we? So We would, we would. But um, in practice, those constitutional politics are quite hard won. And those... Uh, to have a revolution in peaceful terms is very difficult in global terms and historical terms. It's quite unusual. Um, so it would be an unusual circumstance to, to, to do that, uh, admittedly. And the Czechoslovak case provides quite a good parallel in that sense. But that was in the mid-1990s when a lot of attention was being drawn not to the peaceful separation of Czechoslovakia, but to the very unpeaceful separation of Yugoslavia, that has more similarities with the rest of history than um, the Czechoslovak case. So I think we should be careful with searching for the, the very peaceful, the peaceful solution because it's the one that comforts us. It's the armed struggle which has generally produced the independence movements and independence of countries. The nearest parallel, otherwise, we think of. Iceland's independence in, 19, in the 1940s from Denmark. But again, there's a world war going on, uh, very different circumstances. That's the thing, isn't it? Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. I'm glad they split up. It's so much easier to say <laughs> Czechoslovakia. Um, Czechoslovakia in 1994, Iceland 50 years before. Those two separations at a time when attention is being drawn to conflict. They had reasons to do it peacefully. And so... We would always hope that setting up of new countries is going to be peaceful. Uh, and I think that's true of all of us in the family of squabblers. Um, but I think we just have to be realistic that there is a lot more, uh, there are many more examples of violent separations than there are of peaceful ones. What I was looking at was where their politics have gone since that independence. Have they gone down the socialist route or have they gone down, you know, you alluded to Ireland where yeah. Labour, socialism, was told to hold after that kind of independence. If I remember rightly, in Slovakia, it's held to, they've generally held more towards their social democratic parties than in Chechia. 
but both countries are generally better off than some of their other neighbors like Hungary or Poland or um, uh, Romania. Uh, Romania is more economic rather than political uh, struggles really. Certainly their structures have tried, their, their political structures have tried to move towards more of a Western European model which is to say uh, you have Christian Democrats, Liberals and Social Democrats. Many of those parties are also fragments uh, or fragmentary bits of what once was the totality of the Communist Party. Uh, so again, even though those things have happened, there is a somewhat similar parallel in that Sinn Féin in Ireland was the dominant party, it was a single party plus Labour uh, on the left there, uh, Sinn Féin fragmented into the other bits. In those other Eastern European countries, usually the Communist Party is one and fragmented into the other bits, uh, depending on how, whether you were uh, ostensibly pro the regime or you were a little bit more sceptical of the regime or hostile to the regime. Um, which had been in place before the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain. To answer your question directly, Kerry, eventually, <laughs> um, is that they are they are moving towards more of a familiar structure, and they have tried to hold to those more familiar structures where you do have social democrats, Christian democrats, and liberals, a left, a centre left, a centre, and a centre right, as it were, um, in a more European context. But they have their own hinterlands, they have their own backgrounds, they have their own relationships with the 20th century experience, and particularly in uh, Czechoslovakia, the Czech part of Czechoslovakia, not just with the uh, the communist takeovers after the uh, Second World War, but also with the effects of 1968 in the Prague uh, Spring. And those memories are all there in part and parcel of the background and people who were uh, revolutionaries in 1968 against the regime, which was supposedly set up by revolutionaries, are in, uh, you know, have their relationship with capital and, and relationship with capitalism, with Western democracies, uh, and fitting in with the Western model and trying to form part of the European Union. And it is therefore the European Union as the umbrella, which is supposed to bring normality and those there's all sorts of political science literature from the 1990s talking about um, political norms and the realities of western democratic systems and modelings of democratic structures and so forth uh Czechia and Slovakia have done rather better on that than Poland or Hungary Viktor Orban started off as a revolutionary himself so you know these these trajectories people travel are are interesting and, and worth being mindful of yeah, bringing us back sort of to where to where we were, you know, there's a there's a big thing on the the sort of Welsh nationalists that we speak to who often say that to them they think that Westminster is you know in incapable of delivering socialism, true what they call true socialism. Obviously, you you you've you've outlined almost a sort of be careful what you wish for kind of thing when there is this status quo altering uh, set of circumstances. But what do you say to those people who think that Westminster is poorly set up for socialism and who think that Wales would be better set up for it? It really does depend on what type of socialism you want. Westminster created the National Health Service. Westminster created modern education systems. Westminster created a lot of the infrastructure we will need if we ever happen to become independent. But I think the fundamental is that Westminster created the National Health Service, and that is, if nothing else, the central point of socialist religion in the United Kingdom, or in Wales, or in Scotland, or in England, and Northern Ireland. That 
reminds us that to affect great change, you do need the great levers of power. There's a quote in Labour Country from Kiahadi, and he's, he's in Aberdeer in about 1901, and he's talking to folks in Aberdeer and says, well, look, I know you think that local government is useless. I know you think that Westminster is useless. But unless you get involved and unless you grab hold of those levers of power, you cannot ever change anything. And those are the most democratic levers that you have at your disposal. Socialism also always relies on changing the structure that it exists in. That's true of Swedish and Norwegian social democrats who have created societies that people are very envious of, maybe not in Sweden right at the moment, or it's true of socialists on the outside of those um, structures who are pushing for more radical alternatives or more radical uh, and faster uh, directions. And people used to say that to an Iron Bevan, oh, you haven't done enough about council housing. You haven't done enough on this. You haven't done enough on that. Why have you allowed general practitioners to retain their private practice? You haven't created a true national health service. And you do find that in the 1960s and 1970s where things start to wobble a little bit because of economics and people start talking about how the National Health Service was nationalised, but it wasn't socialised. It was nationalists. It was a national service rather than a socialist service. And Iron Devon and the National Health Service are both subject to these same criticisms of, oh, it isn't really socialism. It doesn't really do this. It's not really up to scratch. It's not, it's not fine. It's not dandy. Well, it is. Uh, it created the thing that created you in a lot of ways <laughs> everybody on this in this um pretty much who isn't in their 90s and late 80s uh was born under the national health service uh, and therefore we owe most of our existence if we've ever had an illness if we've ever had a bad turn if you knocked over whatever we owe that medical response unless we're lucky enough to have private health care insurance and whatever but you know vast majority of us owe our healthcare to someone who responded to the power of Westminster by saying go away I'm going to take hold of this lever myself and I'm going to do something which is going to change the world and it did and it fundamentally did and if you can grow up in a South Wales in a in Tredegar where the state did almost nothing for you you therefore had no loyalty to the state whatsoever you can recognize that the state is the most powerful thing and you want to change it. And that's what he says in In Place of Fear. Is that at every level I moved from I moved from my trade union through to the local council, through to the county council, and I, through to the back benches, through into cabinets. And at each level I wanted to find out where power was so I could grab hold of it and dilute its strength and turn it into something which changed the world. That gets romanticized a lot, I know. And all of us like to claim the legacy of an Iron Bevan somehow because it has a romantic strength to it. But if we think about how powerful that action is, that tells us a lot about uh, the potential of Westminster to change the world. We are in a much better situation today than they were in 1945. They literally bankrupted the country to fight a world war against really not very nice people. We're not in that situation anymore. We're in a much better situation. We have a lot more opportunities. We have a lot more possibilities. And yet we say that Westminster's not up to it anymore. Or in fact, it's not just Westminster. It's a governmental problem at every level. Cardiff's not up to it. Your local council isn't up to it. Whatever it might be, 
all of these governmental structures, these democratic governmental structures are up to it. They aren't socialist enough. They therefore can't be ever made socialist enough or green enough, actually. Um, it's not just a, a, a red question. It's a red and green question, isn't it? They have to be because they're the best things that we have at the present moment. And if you constantly saying that they're not good enough, well, you're also saying that you don't really care about the present moment. I think that's quite strong in my, my own sense of belief. We have these structures that we have to deal with now. People aren't going to be waiting around. If you're on the street today, you have to do something about it today. Climate crisis isn't going to wait around until we're independent and we can have a wonderful, lovely socialist uh, nirvana, perhaps with permanent nirvana on stereo. You have to respond today. In fact, you had to respond 20 years ago to the climate question to even improve it today. But the reason it's not socialist enough for us is because the Tories keep winning elections uh, in Westminster. The answer to that is to kick the Tories out in one way or another. Then you'll see whether it can be made socialist or not. But remembering that there are varieties of socialism and really what most Europeans, and I include us in that, uh, I'm sure that will annoy some people, but I do include us in the European thing. Most Europeans are at heart social democrats and all that that means. It means a democracy that works for society, works for the social part of humanity, which is collective in that, in that sense. It isn't about the individual full stop. It's not about economics in a random monetarist way. It's about those solutions which make people's lives better. Uh, and that's what any socialist looking to achieve something better for the person next to them, to look, for, look at the person who's around them and is the, uh, the worst off. Socialism is supposed to find the best solution. And if the best solution is to try and change the system that we have, that's probably better than a, a bigger ambition, yes, but fantasy nonetheless, uh, which is that things will be better in the future. We'll have this great pie in the sky it's just not going to happen um so you have to have socialism which works i think there's an awful lot in the in what we've discussed to which we can pick at um and there's areas of the eu which we've touched upon and i'd like to explore a bit more but i want to link it in with kind of federalism a little bit and whether one of the problems or one of the reasons why we're looking for more autonomy independence in areas of the uk if not elsewhere in europe is because there isn't the kind of checks and balances that perhaps federal structures in some of our european countries which we like to look at have and the one that springs to mind is the the eu trade treaty with canada with wallonia i think was the the part of belgium which was kind of holding it up if wales and scotland and perhaps even areas of england had that level of kind of federal power and influence would the independence movements be what they are? So there's a lot of talk about federalism at the moment. Are there any thoughts on that? Well, um, I've actually lived in a federal country. Well, a confederal country in the sense that I lived in Nova Scotia when I did my master's. The Nova Scotians have exactly the same problems. In fact, if you go to Newfoundland, uh, it's even worse. In Newfoundland, most young people have to leave the island to go to Ontario, to go to Alberta, to go to Quebec sometimes if they're really... Um, interested in, in some of those questions to have a better economic existence. Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island are swamped by Ontario, Quebec and Alberta and British Columbia. 
there is a, there is a need to be real, a realistic as well and understand that confederalism and federalism aren't always the comfortable answers two of the two worst countries in the planet for COVID-19 uh, cases are the United States and Brazil. Both have a federal stroke, confederal structure. We are a lot, the problem that we have, I think a lot of the time is that we have insular quest, uh, answers to these questions. We think that federalism is an answer, but we rarely ask people who actually live in federal structures, whether it is or not. Um, if we went to Belgium and said, hey, did you think it was a great idea not to have a government for several, for months and months and months and months and months? They probably would have just gone, we're used to it by now, to be honest. But they would have been quite happy, a lot more constructive if they'd been able to form a government because those, con those federal uh, checks and balances weren't batting against each other constantly. But also, when we talk about Belgium, we don't talk about the small German part of Belgium right on the eastern edge of it, uh, which generally gets forgotten. When we talk about Switzerland, for instance, we generally think about uh, a federal structure. We generally think about the battle, the great battle between the French-speaking west of Switzerland and the German-speaking east. But we rarely talk about the uh, Italian-speaking part of the south of Switzerland. So even in those federal structures, our instinct is drawn to the big, not the small, to the powerful, not to the weaker, and to the those that um, seem to do best off in those places than those who don't do as well. And it comes back to that question of inequality again. A lot of the reason why those national movements exist is because um, there are minorities in the country uh, who want political representation. That's very true but find it very difficult to gain political representation under uh, first past the post. And if we had, and I know this has been a green policy for a very long time, if we had proportional representation in a meaningful sense, we would dilute some of these tensions. Some of the reason why there are tensions in Canada, for example, is because they also have first past the post. Uh, they use F, uh, first past the post for their general elections and their provincial elections. And therefore, it prioritises the big parties, just as it does in the United Kingdom. No surprises, we gave them that system, um, and they are stuck with it in the same way that we are. But we can overcome those things in the 21st century by changing to a proportional system, which allows for much more representation of the nuances of um, political perspectives. That, I think, is more valuable than a federal or confederal structure which isn't actually going to change the central uh, problem which is that Westminster isn't very good because of the first past the post system which favours two big parties uh, at representing minority perspectives of all of all types and so for this, the SNP they had to win big which is to say that they had to win pretty much all the seats in Scotland to really get a voice in Westminster Clytemore, even if they win every seat in Wales, is never going to get that same level of voice. Labour gets that voice because it wins seats in, well, England and Wales now. It doesn't really win seats in Scotland, does it? But nonetheless, it provides that voice. And the Lib Dems similarly. For me, that's the answer, first and foremost, is to, to provide better representation of differences within the Westminster structure. And the reason I say that is because if you happen to go to Westminster and you look in the parliamentary archives, there is... This exact debate from 1914, they had exactly this question about what to do 
if the different home rule governments of the United Kingdom were of different colours? What would you do if the government of England was Tory, the government of Wales was, well, they thought liberal in 1914, but we can update it a little and say Labour. And if you thought the government in Scotland was liberal or Labour, whatever it might be, what would happen? And what were the dynamics? They predicted at that time that the constitutional politics of the country would start to grind to a halt because no one could decide who was the senior government. And then they had this extra uh, quotient, which is to say, well, okay, but what happens if we have a government of England, UK government, which is federal or confederal or whatever the structure might be? And they go, it'll break down because if England had its government, which was Tory, but the all the rest of the UK combined together and created a federal government which was liberal, those two aren't going to talk to each other. England is much more powerful than the other parts, but the other parts create a liberal government at the federal level. It's all going to come crashing into each other. Canada has had that experience. The United States, to, somewhat, to some extent, has had that experience. You think if you were a Democrat in California or Vermont or New York in 2016, you just spent the last four years uh, living with Republican presidents and vice versa. There's been circumstances where that's been shifted around. But those tensions have been thought about historically, but they all exist, I think, because they're trying to find solutions to the problem which ignores the central question, which is why doesn't Westminster represent greater variety of voices? And the reason it doesn't is because it has first past the post until that changes this is this question is going to keep coming up and up and up and up you can diffuse it properly by having greater representation at Westminster and then then if that doesn't work by all means have the next question but you've got to try everything you can't just say oh it doesn't work we're going to give up there has to be there has to be a trial and I do think therefore that Westminster will find a purpose again because at the moment it doesn't really have a purpose it's quasi the English government without being the English government because it's not elected just by England this is the reality it's elected by all of us and once it has that those that greater representation it will I think we'll find a different a different outcome and a different set of tensions will emerge I think they won't be so much constitutional tensions they will be tensions around inequality privilege the environment unfairness and all of those things which Mark Drayford was referring to in his speech and uh, was hinting at on the radio as well that there are bigger struggles than constitutional struggles. Daryl, why do you think that people like Keir Starmer and Carwin Jones have gone to this constitutional change as some sort of like silver bullet for all of Labour's ills? Why, why do you think they've, they've done that rather than going, like you've said, for the ch- other changes to the constitution? <laughs> I'm afraid it's, it is the easy answer. Lack him or loathe him, it's exactly why Tony Blair really wasn't interested in constitutional politics. It's quite dull. Um, It's really not the preserve of people who are interesting and interested um, in uh, bigger questions. Um, I think that's also why the great politicians of the 20th century are also not interested in constitutional politics. Uh, They really couldn't care less. The reason they couldn't care less is because inequality needs greater attention needs real focus, needs really big ideas to come up with solutions which are meaningful and long-lasting. There's a reason why the health service has survived. All the tinkering, all of the meddling around, it survived because 
it was a solution which was ideal and it was a socialist solution which was ideal created by someone who had big ideas and really couldn't care less about constitutional politics frankly um and i think that's why an iron bevan is so interesting but the more recent times uh, they tinker because it's easy uh, i'm afraid i i think that very clearly about um a lot of the politicians is they're tinkering with things which are easy and they're not looking for the hard answers which are sometimes more difficult to bring people along with this is true of of the environmental questions and climate change those need big answers which are difficult to pull people along with and so if you come up with a a soundbite or a, an easy answer to constitutional politics which is to say okay yeah we'll just give you everything you want fine as long as you don't run away we'll be we'll be happy and hope that actually that creates new seats for labor in scotland or improves their seat representation in the north of england but that doesn't solve poverty that doesn't solve the environmental uh, disasters which are likely to loom that doesn't solve um the big fundamental questions of the present and the future it strikes me as that old dynamic of prime ministers that when they start to lose the home front they move to the foreign affairs and they find it so much easier to flit around at big gatherings in new york and brussels and geneva talking to people like them ultimately if you have big constitutional conventions and you're a politician you're basically talking to people like you and it's a lot easier to do that actually to talk to people like you than it is to talk to people who aren't like you and that's the reality of it i think that's why it's the easy answer to to really come up with hard solutions you have to talk to people who aren't like you uh daryl thank you so much for coming along before you go you said earlier on that historians are not good at predicting would you like to give us your uh, prediction for next year's senate election whilst we've got you here no we are generally terrible at predicting, <laughs> but i think the easiest thing in the world to predict is the outcome of the welsh assembly elections or rather should i should say the senate elections in cardiff and uh, now the welsh assembly is no more rest in peace the outcome is most likely to be much the same uh, result as occurred in 2011-2016. Labour will be the largest party. Um, whether they are able to then construct a coalition with Christy Williams uh, and a couple of others probably they will need, or depending on the dynamics of the opposition parties, uh, who knows. But I'm fairly certain that Mark Drakeford will, in a year's time, still be First Minister. Um, most of his other colleagues in cabinet will remain um probably the only constituency where there would be any real nervousness would be in Llanelli with um with lee waters and ultimately i think uh that's what will happen the real interest battle is going to be as to who comes second whether that's going to be the tories or whether that's going to be Clyde Cymru. but by coming second they they won't have any power again uh, and and that will be my prediction i'm quite happy to uh, leave all the polling and predictions to <laughs> Professor Scully otherwise but the reality is that I don't think the other parties have proved themselves in the last five years as as viable alternatives what would be interesting I think and this is this is perhaps a thought to think about is is why all the fragmentation is occurring on the right of the senate and not on the left why is it there aren't for instance why is it that the senate is the only one in in the uk in britain not the uk but britain specifically it doesn't have a green uh, i think that's quite interesting to think about um because that would really change things because if you imagine a, co a cabinet which comprised 
Labour, Lib Dem and Green, whether the Green would want, would want to go full, that far or whether they would be happy to provide confidence and supply is another matter. But it would be an interesting dynamic which would change things up a little bit and make Welsh politics a bit more interesting in the same way that Kirsty Williams' presence in Cabinet has actually changed things up a lot. And it's made, it's made for interesting decisions around um, the education uh, bills that have come through and the priorities that have been put forward for education and things. That would be an interesting one, but I wouldn't. I think it's it's difficult to change the status quo, and I think the 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 seat fragmentation we're going to see is not going to come from the from the parties of the left, as it were, in a broad sense, um, but it's going to come from the right with whatever the heck is going on uh, to the right of the Conservative Party in the Senate. They're doing strange things, all of them. They, they'll probably have created like the the uh, abolish the assembly but keep our jobs party. Um, by the end of it, um, and who knows? Uh, who knows what's going to happen there? But, but as I say, my my prediction is is firmly that Labour will remain in power, either as a minority on its own or in a minority administration with Kirsty Williams, who might well want to carry on as Education Minister, and and thereafter, uh, Bob's your uncle, takes your choice, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use or cliche. Um, the other parties are going to just have to fight it out for themselves to be the other people in the Senate. I'm afraid we've, we've done we've done Wales, Daryl. So what about what about Labour in general, though, and socialism in the UK? Like, where do you see see that in the in the near future? Labour's going to have a difficult uh, time of it over the next few years because it isn't coming back in Scotland. Uh, I'm afraid um, that that is done. Uh, Labour is done in Scotland. They are going to be the third party uh, in the uh, Scottish Parliament. And if that's sustained at Westminster level, that makes it very, very difficult for Labour to win uh, power in Westminster, except without the support of the other parties. And of course, the difficulty with the Conservative Party is that they have basically hoovered up a lot of Liberal Democrats. As a result of the coalition, brilliant move on on the Conservative part, not so clever on the Lib Dems part. Um, so the 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 potential of the Labour Party to win at Westminster is very it would be hard to predict that that's likely to happen. But also we've we've had our own um, shortcomings in recent years, whereby the Labour Party hasn't exactly made itself electable in a, in the sense that it has to win across a broad spectrum. Of, of voters who are were antagonistic to the previous Labour regime and who therefore have to start to come back into love with the Labour Party again. Uh, and that will take a little while because actually they've been hearing things from the other parties. More so the, the Tory party will tell you everything that you want to hear and then do, do none of it when in power. Um, those voters have been hearing that from the from Labour's opponents, and so therefore Labour have lo- has lost some of that faith that they might once have drawn on. So they've got an uphill struggle um, to win back power. And ultimately, it's not oppositions which win elections, it's governments which lose them. And as sad as it is to say, uh, really what we're hoping for is the Conservative Party to lose the next election rather than the Labour Party to win it, and for therefore for socialism to win in whatever form you might think of it as, uh, to win in the next Westminster election is somewhat reliant on the Conservatives losing uh, the next election in, enough, uh, in a form which allows Labour to come into power. 
that places socialism in a broad spectrum um, rather on the back foot as it is all over the islands I think um, it's not in a good place um, social democracy across, across Europe generally isn't in such a brilliant place but we're in an interesting moment and socialism and social democracy have two wings to them they have the levers of the state and they have the ideas and the organization at grassroots level and I think what's interesting is that the grassroots level things are a lot healthier they just haven't yet translated into taking charge of the state and the levers of power that's very similar to 100 years ago <laughs> as historians we always like to revel in the in the black and white periods of the time uh, of the timeline rather than the ones in glorious technicolor present but if you said to a socialist in 1918, "Oh, you'll be in you'll be in power in 20 in 1924," they'd have looked at you funny and gone, oh, "I don't think so." And if you'd specifically told them that it would really be uh, Ramsay Macdonald, who would be sitting for a Welsh seat, namely Aberavon, who would be prime minister in just six years after the First World War, when he's just lost his seat in Leicester, they'd also not think that would be very sensible. But yet, that is exactly what happened. So things can change very quickly in the aftermath of pandemics and uh, healthcare um, challenges. We're in an interesting moment, I think. Whether we parallel what happened in the aftermath of 1919-1920 with the Spanish flu pandemic a century ago, in our present moment will be interesting. But again, it was a similar moment then. We relied a lot on what happened with the United States. They knew that Woodrow Wilson wasn't going to carry on as president in the United States. Um, and who was going to take charge. We will be looking to that, I think, in the next few months, uh, mainly because we may be back in lockdown in a few months' time and have nothing better to do other than watch the American elections. But that will change the window of opportunity for socialism around the UK, I think. Uh, we're, uh, we're going to have to hold on to the values and the hopes and the aspirations and the dreams that we have, which is what makes us socialists of various different colours, and look for opportunities which arise and those opportunities will arise here in a year's time with the elections and will arise, well, whenever the incumbents in Westminster call a general election, whether it's at the end of the term or whether they call it beforehand, um, those opportunities will arise again. The best way of thinking about it is that it is, um, we're in a moment where we have to hold on to our optimism. And if we lose sight of our optimism, we'll fall into a deep pessimism. And as soon as we're pessimistic, we start thinking that politics doesn't do anything for us anymore and that we aren't going to be able to change anything. We might as well just put up with the situation as it is, when actually you don't become a socialist to, to put up with situations as they are. You try and change things. Dr. Darrell Leeworthy, on that very optimistic note, thank you very much. Um, if people would want to get in contact with you after this episode, what's the best way to do so it's uh, labourcountry.wordpress.com Daryl yeah. thank you so much for, for joining us this evening it's been really really interesting if you want to find out more about what we're up to at Hereife please find us at Medium at Hereife Blog Cymru on Facebook at Hereife Blog Cymru and on Twitter at Hereife Blog thank you for listening to Hereife if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review